two, Michael and Ethan in a room with scotch. Hi. Who are you? I'm, we don't even know who I am yet, and no. you're jumping in and, and uh, saying words? I was covering for your heart attack that you were having. Oh, well, it was a burp, but close. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, I'm, I'm glad that the way you would react if I did have a heart attack, though, is by continuing the podcast. <laughs> Gotta take, you know, priorities. Yeah, the show must go on, it's I triage. understand. It's triage. That's not what triage is at all. <laughs> um... Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Ethan in a Room with Scotch, and Michael is no longer allowed to talk. What? Um, we've made the acronym even longer, but Michael is no longer allowed to talk, so, you know. I'm being censored. Some. Oh, very clever. Look at that. A callback. Hi, I'm Ethan. <laughs> this is Michael. Uh, we're here at the end of four real long episodes. We did, like, a whole dream sequence thing. Uh... <laughs> Where we were in character for the first time since our extremely well-received Hello from the Magic Tavern pastiche episode. <laughs> um, and uh, it went as, at least so as well... well what? That was so well-received. Yeah, and this one, this this couple of episodes went at least as well as that one did, oh, I yes. would say. So, um, anyway, we are talking for the fourth... I was about to say for the fourth and final time, but surely that's you know not that's correct. not true. Um, about the life and opinions of Tristram Shandy, gentlemen, by Lawrence Stern. Be a we... guaranteed way to make you lose those to make it a rule you can't ever talk about it again. Well, I would quit the podcast if we had that rule. <laughs> like that would be the rule that sort of negated the podcast as a whole, it's true. which which does seem on brand for this set of discussions. Also, yeah. Um, yeah. So. Here we are. We are drinking Green Spot Irish Whiskey. Uh, Green Spot, I have not mentioned yet, is a single pot still Irish whiskey, mm-hmm. um, which, as I understand it, is one of those styles of whiskey that was real big before Prohibition. Um, Prohibition pretty much murdered it for a long time. It was available maybe very rare bottlings um, and has be- is becoming... Uh, sort of experiencing a renaissance. Um, one of the more famous and probably widely available single pot still Irish whiskeys is Redbreast, mm-hmm. um, which won like the best whiskey in the world award by someone's lights. I'm not sure who. Uh, several years ago, um, and uh, it it uh it sort of kick started. Um, this sort of a renaissance in uh, uh, single pot still Irish whiskey. Um, as I understand it, single pot still is as opposed to your standard like Jameson or Bushmills, which are blended whiskeys. So you have multiple right. pot stills going on. Um, and I think uh, I want to be very careful and say that I don't. I know that this is an extremely rough analogy, but I think single pot still is roughly similar to single malt scotch just in the sense that uh the point of a single malt is that you have a more unique character and a more um more depth and complexity because you only are sourcing the scotch from a single source instead of blending it together which tends to iron out a lot of the nuance i think similarly in single pot still you have you have whiskey from one production source um and that preserves a lot of the nuance and mm. and uh, um, depth and complexity. And in those ways and no others, don't at me. All of the, 
whiskey experts who listen to this thing, um, right. this is this is sort of a similar product. Yeah. Um, that said, uh, let us have my wife come in and read the rules. Aha. Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number 6. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number 7. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. listener. Thank you, wife. Uh, Reading the rules live, as you always do, except for last time. That one time, we had a robot instead. Alright, if you keep insisting on that, I am going to make some more podcast cassette references, and no one's going to be happy. (laughs) It's the moral of the podcast. We don't want anybody happy. That is true. should print t-shirts, Michael and Ethan, and Room with Scotch. We don't want anybody happy. (laughs) It's been a long time since we had a good t-shirt idea, and that is very good. It's true. I think our best idea for merch so far has been the nihilism blanket. Yeah, yeah, that is. Anyway, yeah. Uh, well, Do up. Now, what was that? <laughs> I stole one toast from you, and you had nothing. Nothing. You couldn't even say slot. You cannot bring yourself to say slanch. I think I've said it before. We have a very delicious Irish. Uh, oh. <laughs> we have the perfect circumstance. <laughs> In which to say slancha, (laughs) and you refuse. Would it make you happy if I said it? Would it? Would that make your day if I said it? Yes, it would. It would. But we don't want anybody happy. Dang it! (laughs) Now you can never say it. I can't. I can't ever. And therefore, I will slancha. I have to go in a corner and cry now. Emotional whiplash is too much. Uh, all right. That was close. That was, so that was close. yeah, I know. That was. That was probably dangerous territory. I know. I know. I uh, I know. It was. Mm-hmm. And I can't say anything more about that without no, uh, getting in can't. more trouble. You can't. Or at least almost getting in trouble again, however you want to classify that. Yeah. I don't 
Okay. <laughs> I was just waiting for the loud car to go by outside. Okay. But also fair. staring at you expectantly, because sometimes you say things when I stare at you expectantly. Yeah, I mean, I take that as a silent cue. You know, this is an audio medium, and so the the listener can't see you staring, and so it's a subtle way for you to get across to me that you've got nothing and you need me to pick up the oh. slack on this podcast, but the listener will never know oh, I see. that you've I dropped see that... the ball on it. Um, <laughs> I would like to give you another silent cue and see what you make of this one. <laughs> See, if it weren't silent, you would have to put the explicit tag on this episode. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. One day we'll start live streaming this episode, whatever that is. Like, whatever that is. Some podcasts, I think, when, when they record, they'll like live Ooh, stream it so you get like, a rough We should do a 24-hour charity stream sometime. Yes. That's an extremely not terrible idea. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> So not. It'd be a great idea. What would make that a bad idea? It's not an extremely not terrible idea. It's not an extremely not terrible. Wait. Does mean it's a terrible idea. So. Shoot. I think we know who actually wins here. Um. Okay. We had such a good like tight episode last so, episode. So like. And now we've just like, if we end up this episode without our shirts off, fist fighting each other. <laughs> Well, here's a here's a visual cue for you. Would you say that this episode has started off looking something like this? Um Yes, that I would I would say that exactly. There. How's that? Uh So, as the gentle listener no doubt has gleaned, we are in chapter 40 of whatever part 6. Thank you. Um in which Tristram draws the progress of is a uh, um, sort of draws rather a, a visual representation of the the train of thought, I guess, of his. Uh... The it's it's the the plot arc. Yeah, such as it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I, I think arc is deceptive because I don't. A, I don't know if they talked in in terms of story arcs at that point. Though maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong, and you're about to Didn't prove me wrong. Didn't he say something about? I just don't Story know if he, arc, like I don't know if he used the word arc. Yeah, it's, that's fair. I could be wrong though, um, but because I think, as I understand the the squiggly lines, uh, he the idea is that a, a straightforward train of thought where um, no digressions happened and he was never distracted that would be represented by a straight line mm-hmm. and all of the the perambulations and the the um curly cues and the the wigglings and the line represent places he has either become distracted or where he has digressed uh or whatever um and it's great and wonderful and once again, goes along with that idea of modeling uh, that, you know, is, is pervasive throughout the book. Right. Most obviously in uh, Uncle Toby's uh, um, attempts to yeah. precisely model. Well, Speaking and this, of... this comes right in the, the context of he, he wants to go on with Uncle Toby's story, but That's this right. is what has occupied the story of himself and Uncle Toby. Now, speaking of Uncle Toby, um, mm-hmm. it's high time High time. we devoted an episode to everyone's favorite character. Everyone's. 
everyone's. Yes, listener. This includes you. That's right. Giving you a stern look. Man, if the theme of this episode is us making this a podcast of visual cues, like, I think we're going to lose whatever listenership we had. Yeah, it's hard to listen to something visual. It's not impossible. It's just very difficult. It might be even harder to listen to (laughs) us trying to make something visual into something audible. Right. If I look hard enough, can you hear it? All right. This is the second time I'm going to threaten to just make this (laughs) the Ethan without Michael podcast. But will you ever actually go through with it? That's the question we all. I don't know. I just don't know what I'd call it if I did. What would you call it? What would you call it? Something amazing, I guess. All right. Well, we fenced each other to a standstill on this one. That's right. Let's um, call it a draw. We we can both see the end of this episode already looming. I know. And we don't want to suffer the inevitable consequences don't, of that. Don't want it. Don't want it. Don't want it. Uh. Yes. So. Now I forgot what I was going to say. Uh, Toby. Uncle Toby. Thank you. Uh, you said... So you created a reading group guide. Well, yeah. I would say half of a reading group guide for this uh, episode. Because, yeah. as I told you last episode, any reading group guide worth its salt has to be eight questions long. I didn't make that Seems rule. Seems arbitrary to me. It is arbitrary. I didn't make the rule... Well, okay, it's not... Because the definition of the word arbitrary means something I made up, and I didn't make it up. That's just how every reading group guide is. So someone made that rule, but it's not me. And therefore it's arbitrary, because someone did it. All right. We're not... This is not the Us Arguing Words podcast. Oh. It's the only thing that seems more obnoxious than us verbally describing visual jokes. (laughs) Um, But anyway, it is... Well, it is too short, it is... It is, in fact, much better than any reading group guide I've encountered on this podcast. So, you might get... It'd be one of those things where it's like... We described the Orchardist reading group guide as... uh, Two on a scale of one to two on a scale of one to ten. Right. (laughs) Yours might get a five on a scale of one to two on a scale of one to ten. Okay, I'll take it. Um, And it's only five because, like, I can't... As an ethical teacher, I can't give a full grade to something that was only half of the assignment length. Gotcha. And here I am grading you again. You are. So we've come full circle. Yes. Uh, So what is is your question? All right. Um, So, yeah. We've gone through the first three questions. So this is the last of the four questions. Question four. And and it's... I, I, I... teased that it was related to the discussion of Uncle Toby, and so I'll give a brief two cents about it um, as, I, as I finish reading the question um, to, to make that connection for you. So, Thank you. what does Tristram Shandy contribute to the conversation about fate and love among Jacques and Don Quixote? And the connection here is, A, that the book talks a lot about Don Quixote, and B, uh, there's a, a, a reference to Trim, Uncle Toby's manservant, and Trim's loves. The stories of Trim's loves. 
Yes. Which is very Jacques. Yes. However, the timing is not right. Is it not? No, not well, it's it's approximate because Jacques the Fatalist was pretty close. Okay, um I remember reading, I think in some footnotes in my edition of Jacques the Fatalist, that Diderot was directly inspired by Tristram Shandy. Yeah. To the point that he like what we would today call borderline plagiarizes. Okay. <laughs> um part of Tristram Shandy towards the end, like he just straight up takes a um I forget what it is. He takes some like passage and I think in the text Diderot gives like at least a passing nod to Stern or to, sure. to Tristram. I think we mentioned that when we discussed yeah, yeah. Because uh, we were calling back to these episodes that we had not yet done. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> but, which actually seems very on brand for Jacques the Fatalist. So much. Uh, <laughs> but, yes. So, um, I forgot what I was going to gonna say. Well, um, the relationship between yeah. Jacques and his master is yeah. similar to Trim and Toby. Yeah, very much so. And um, and maybe this is where you were going to go with it, but to the point that Toby and his uh, story of lying in after receiving a war wound mm-hmm. um, is repeated almost like beat for beat in Jacques the Fatalist. Yeah. Um, is that where is that part of where you? That's were not going exactly with? where I was going, but it it's connected. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Um. It like it, it mostly just occurred to me that you know Tristram Shandy makes reference uh, to and he uses the phrase the story of Trim and his love. I can't find any particular um, reference of it, but he does that a, a couple of times at least. Yeah. Um. And um. it having read Jacques the Fatalist not too terribly long ago and discussed it at length, of course I was thinking about that. The, right. the story of Jacques and his loves, which, again, the, the structure of that book is, um, in its non-structuredness, very similar to uh, that of uh, Tristram Shandy. Yeah. That, you know, th- there's always the tease that I'm going to talk about the story of Jacques and his loves. Right. His master wants to hear about stories of Jacques and his loves and we like get some of Trim and his loves but it's yeah. it's, it's almost briefly there and it's, it's it's also there as like a salve to his master to Uncle Toby it's um but it, it's interesting this book almost I, I talked in in uh one of the dream episodes about uh the idea of a of a genre going through sort of a primitive phase, a classical phase, and a revisionist phase. Yeah. And you can almost see Tristram Shandy doing that cycle with itself over the course of its nine volumes. Sure. Um, and part of that, I think, has to do with Stern becoming more uh, um, more comfortable and confident. Like, you get the impression that the first volume, or maybe even two, were on the order of an experiment that he didn't necessarily know if it would go very well, but it became, you know, in the a 1760s British version of a bestseller, uh, and so he was he was his confidence, I think, solidified as he published more volumes. Um, he knew he could sort of get away with the stuff that he had gotten away with in the first volume, so that becomes like the middle book becomes this very solid, like, um, you know, 
a lot of like the classic stuff, the passages of people who do read and know and appreciate this book, what they point to is often sort of in the middle, like say volumes three, four, five, six, roughly. And volumes seven, eight, and nine almost become a satire of the life and opinions of Tristram Shandy. <laughs> um, not, I think, I don't think it was in a similar way to like uh, Cervantes killing off Don Quixote because he was sick about of writing about him. Right. Um, I think just more in that that uh, Stern had like by the time you're in volume seven, for example, um, you're I don't know in my text you're uh, let's see easily 400 pages in so like there is a substantial self to refer back to um so Mm -hmm. by volume seven uh stern can almost almost satirize the writer of the life and opinions of tristram shandy or the the work itself um and trim's love all loves almost become a satire of like the sermon passage mm-hmm. or certain of the other passages um in that like that uh, the the sermon passage takes a takes a form and sort of fragments it and shatters it and the story of trim and his loves and uh this is also uh and I just flipped past it and of course I won't be able to find it now um the there's a story of the king of bohemia and his seven daughters um oh which yeah. is structurally very similar to the sermon passage and it almost feels like stern repeating a trick yeah um because it's it's another one where trim starts out to tell a story and is interrupted and then he has to respond to the interruption and he you know digresses and i think that passage has like the the breakaway title you know, in the middle of a page, the story of the king of Bohemia and his seven daughters. I think it has it like seven different times because Trim keeps restarting the story. Yeah, and I don't think ever does Trim get more than say like three paragraphs into the story. He doesn't finish it at the very least. We never get a real sense unless we know sort of this type of like vaguely fairy tale-ish, fable-ish yeah. story. We never get a real sense of what this story is at all. Right. Um, and so I think Trim's, Trim's Love is a similar, mm-hmm. uh, thing where by the end of this book, Stern is playing with the concept of just suggesting a story without ever having to tell it. Right. Which is, I mean, by that point, when you've gotten that deep into the novel, um, whether by subscription or in, uh, collected bound novel form, yeah. Um you're waiting for the payoff of so many things. Yeah. That you're look you're grasping onto any strand of story plot structure. Yeah. And so it comes up and you grab it and then it's taken away <laughs> and by that point you've been trained so well, which we mentioned I think in our very first episode on First from Shandy, mm-hmm. that you're not mad about it. Right. <laughs> you're just laughing at it right um that yeah that was that was part of my like notes on how to how to read Tristram Shandy is a uh, um the idea that like if you expect it to get somewhere you will be frustrated with it like, right if you figure out that the point is that he's not going to take you the place that 
even that he says he's going to take you. Yeah. Um, like, that's the key to unlocking a lot of the, the joy and the, the richness and the humor of this of this book. Right. Well, I, I, okay, so the, getting back to the, the question itself, the, it's uh, the, the discussion of fate and love here. That, yeah. like, love is central to plot in many, many instances, whether tragedy or comedy. Right. right in the classical sense of both of those terms. And so when you've got a hint of a love story like that, whether it's with Trim uh, or the, even even the, the marriage, the father and mother of Tristram Shandy, you know, that's a love story itself in, right. in some ways. And I use love story in the threadbarest sense of the term. Um, right. Uh, you, then... Um, you also have hints of that with Toby himself. Right. That he's got suturettes <laughs> on occasion. Right, yes, um, yes. That, you know, he's he's being match-made uh, on occasion. Right. Um, so the, you've got this, this idea of this discussion of the, the loves, which, you know, going back to Jacques Fatalist, it's very obvious there. In Don Quixote as well, you've got um, uh, what's her name? His his made up, possibly real, maybe not. Uh, Paramore, what's her name? Uh, Dulcinea. Dulcinea, thank you. Yeah. Um, and so I mean that 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 sort of question is 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 present. Uh, the idea of what place love has. Uh, in life and fate as well, which is related, I think, to that concept. Um, uh-huh. I made reference to the fact that the wound that Uncle Toby received in war effectively made him impotent, um, and so he's recreating that that in the models, um, right, over and over again. I think there are other other passages just in general that talk about. An idea of fate. I don't think it's nearly as central to this book as it is when you talk about Jacques the Fatalist right. uh, or Don Quixote. Um, but I, th- I think you can. I, I think I read Jacques the Fatalist as Diderot had a had I think a more systematic philosopher's mind yes. than a novelist's mind. Yes. Um, and I think. Which I, I don't think is the least conducive sort of mind to the ambiguities um, that you sure. can contain in a novel. But I think what he did was pick up on certain cues in Tristram Shandy that Stern might have seen, I'm tempted to say as a byproduct, which may be too strong of a, of a term, but, term, but at least certainly no more important than certain other things he was doing. But Diderot picked up on those the the ones which were sort of the most um, uh, conducive to his own philosophical interests and sort of ran with them, mm-hmm. um, or in other words, you could say that uh, for some of those reasons, Jacques the Fatalist is almost as if you just had Uncle Toby and Trim be the entire novel without oh, any yeah. of the other sort of a. Uh, uh, attachments or accoutrement mm-hmm. as it were um and i was i was uh t- happened to flip right to the part i wanted um for once nice um which is in uh volume eight uh the first part being chapter 11 and i want to kind of 
Okay. Read a bit here, but skip around a little bit. Um, oh, yes. And so this is when uh, Stern has finally anatomized his digressions enough and set enough other stuff aside uh, that he's finally able to, like, get down to charting the Widow Wadman and Uncle Toby's uh, uh, relationship. Um, one of the things that he's been saying since volume one that he was <laughs> trying to do. Um, but uh, in chapter 11, he, he begins with, Now, as Widow Wadman did love my Uncle Toby, and as my Uncle Toby did not love Widow Wadman, there was nothing for Widow Wadman to do but to go on and love my Uncle Toby or to let it alone. <laughs> um, Widow Wadman would do neither the one nor the other. That is beautiful. Uh, <laughs> that's all I have to say right there. Right. It's it's so it's one of those infuriatingly beautiful things. Right. That if if I were to endeavor to write anything approaching the wonderment that is Tristram Shandy, uh-huh. I would not be able to precisely because this sort of thing is now impossible to do. Right. Yes. It, because it's been done perfectly. Right. It's like it's like okay. It's like I'm not going to go on this digression too far. It's like, so, you know, Lord of the Rings, right? The, that trilogy? I've, I've heard of it. You've heard of it? Okay, so the the central um, uh, MacGuffin is <laughs> the ring in Oh, Lord you're not allowed to say that, but go on. Um, you haven't made it a rule. Um, not, I meant on a much deeper... Oh, okay. You meant in the deep magic. The, the deep magic. <laughs> you're not allowed to say that. Well, um, here we are. Uh, like, the idea, it's such a simple, beautiful idea to have this all-powerful ring at the core, and it's something that has been done and tried and done and tried in other works to have that sort of thing central, but you can't do it, and all of those other things are forgotten because it's been done so perfectly. Yeah. Which, to be fair, like, Tolkien didn't invent that. Oh, no! Like, no, he... because he got it straight from the ring cycle of yeah. Wagner, and, which well, is its own, which, which drew from mythology. Wagner, Wagner, yeah, Wagner basically set the ancient German myth cycle, the Nibelungenlied? Nibelungen? Um, Nibelungenlied? Lied. The last word is Lied. Anyway, the story of the Nibelungs, yep. um, he just set that to music. Uh, yeah. But that, that myth cycle is much more ancient than Wagner exactly. is. Um, but Tolkien draws that idea to such a, such a point that after Tolkien, you either can't do that or you're plagiarizing Tolkien. Exactly. And those are the only two options. Exactly. And, and that's what's happening here on maybe a smaller scale, but it's still yeah. here. Yeah. It's still happening. Well, and I find it really interesting, and I because I think, um, and and I'd have to do a lot more rereading yet again for to come up with the textual evidence. But I think what uh, what Stern or or Tristram means by Widow Wadman would do neither the one nor the other uh, has to do with an extremely human nature thing. Oh yeah, where. 
uh, how much we like someone is sometimes uh, directly parallel and sometimes inversely parallel to how much they like us. Oh, mm-hmm. so there are people that if so, if if person X is liked by person Y, the more that they are liked, the more that they like person Y. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the reverse is true, where the the less they are liked by person Y, the less they they like them. But sometimes that's inverted, where the more that person Y likes them, the less they like person Y. Yes. Sort of a, I wouldn't be a part of a club that would have me as a member kind of a yep. thought. But, again, inversely of that, uh, you you have the idea that some people, if if person X is liked by person, or the less that person X is liked by person Y, the more person X likes person Y. Right. Um, and, uh, so I I think that Widow Wadman is is perhaps hung up in this situation where she's not sure which of those people she is. Exactly. And she changes based on how Toby is. Yep. Um, so there might be instances where Toby seems to regard her that put her off. Uh, but there might be ones where Toby doesn't seem to regard her that, like, draw her on. But, but also the reverse of both of those things is true. And I think Stern shows examples of all four in this um uh-huh. from both both uh toby and and the widow and it's sort of as though they're uh uh cycling through all of the different configurations of that like x y axis to see if they can come up with one that will allow them to be together um yeah almost as an experiment uh and uh i think stern's um uh, I guess what I'd, what I'd call indirect textual support for that can be found just a couple chapters after the one I quoted, uh, chapter 13 of book 8, uh, where mm-hmm. uh, Cern goes, um, I'm tempted, and you would be much more qualified, Michael, to draw this analogy than I would, I'm tempted to say he maybe borrows from some of his studies of Hebrew poetry, Oh, to create sure. An acrostic. An acrostic, yeah. Uh, and I and no, it's, it's such a deliberately imperfect acrostic. Yes. Um. And though I will, I will also say for literary context, I think acrostics sort of were a thing in the eighteenth oh, sure. century. In fact, I would have to do more research to be to assert this more uh, authoritatively, but I think. If I remember right, in 18th century England, like, making a romantic acrostic was, like, a very common way to, like, profess your love for someone. I wouldn't be surprised. So that Stern is maybe satirizing a, a genre. Oh, sure. There. Um, love is certainly, at least alphabetically speaking, one of the most agitating, bewitching, confounded, devilish. And so we have acrostic with each of these words getting its mm-hmm. own line until devilish affairs of life mm-hmm. it's like when you're like in you know you're 10 years old and you first figured out that the acrostic is a thing but you can't quite like get the one word at a time form you have to right. sneak in some you gotta add more yep yeah and then uh extravagant futilitous galagaskinish <laughs> handy dandyish uh, skip it, it skips the letter K, 
age. But you got and also I. J. Well, okay. Here's my thing about J. Oh J no! Was... Don't give me your J I nonsense. J wasn't a letter on its own yet. In the 18th century? Yeah, I mean it was it was transitional at that point. I didn't realize that happened that. Oh long. yeah, it's that recent. Oh okay. Yep. Okay. I and J were the same letter until the early 1900s. Was it that recent? Yeah. Uh, I need to give back my master's degree. I <laughs> Um, so then he transitions again. We have lyrical of all human passions at the same time, the most misgiving, ninny hammering, obstipating, ridiculous dash. Though by the by, Wait, the... you hold on because he, I, he I mixes around. I'm skipping some on purpose, but go on. But okay, so it's O P and there's no Q. Yes. Q is a letter. There's no Q and S and R are inverted. And then oh, you right. Go on from there. And then he he has a whole paragraph after R and then just gets himself distracted. Yep. And dropping into although a conversation if, what's the next what does the next paragraph after R begin with the cart before the horse. what letter oh it's T it's a T okay <laughs> which does skip S but no S is before R you put S oh before duh R. oh I see oh yep. I see oh my gosh yeah that's yeah um also it's all about Toby so of course it stops at T. Uh, that's all I have to say. I was, about about, I was I was contemplating whether to turn to you and ask if you wanted to run this ship. Nope, I'm um, done. Well, you can't. Oh, okay. Uh, Besides the fact that he makes up words, uh, <laughs> right? But like, he has this this uh this friction between like um words that could be could be considered. Positive, bewitching, even could be considered positive. Yeah. Uh, extravagant, um, you know, lyrical, even. Mm hmm. Uh, towards like ninny hammering. Ninny hammering. Ridiculous. Great. Uh, so there's, there's a, a great frustration evidenced um, in love that, and it's in, in a passage that's inherently on Uncle Toby's behalf. Right. So it certainly does seem like that's at least like part of uh that 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 this is is writing from uncle toby's perspective to at least some degree yeah yeah absolutely although it does want me to from now on when i whenever i tell my wife i love her very rarely as that happens i want to tell her that i love her ninny hammeringly uh i wish you would try that exact thing <laughs> Preferably after you have uh, hit the video record button on your phone, oh. or audio record if you prefer, honestly, either way. Um, and please do, like, send me the results of that as soon as you try it. Okay. Um, I'll do my best. Actually, my, my tip for you there... Oh, um, I'd appreciate it. Any yeah. help I can get. Is to uh, tell her you're quoting pootry, ah, you're quoting yes. literature. And if she still, like, if she happens to object... To quote that, the master poets. Yeah. And if that doesn't, like, calm her objection, just read her that entire chapter. Ah, yes. Um, and that should that should really do it. Like, because what I've found is that women really love when you do quote poetry and quote literature to yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's similar to uh, the thing I told my brother uh, in my best man speech at his wedding, mm -hmm. which is that if your wife is... Um, angry at you, like you can't reflect that anger back to her. You have to sort of 
mitigate and sort of be the bigger person. Mm-hmm. Um, so you compliment her. Like, you tell her uh, yes. that she's very adorable when she's angry. Right, exactly. Um, yes. And then you, you that should to... diffuse the entire situation. Exactly. That's the word I was going to use, diffuse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, advice for newlyweds here Good. on yep. Michael and Ethan. There you go. Got you covered. Um, okay, so the, the passage, I, or the chapter I was just quoting... And and I do have to uh, say that in with uh, your discussion question that kicked us off, what's the opening of chapter 14? Chapter 14, yes. In uh, book 8 there. <laughs> the fates, who certainly all foreknew of these amours of Widow Wadman and my Uncle Toby, had from the first creation of matter in motion, and with more courtesy than they usually do things of this kind, established such a change of, chain of causes and effects hanging so fast to one another that it was scarce possible for my Uncle Toby to have dwelt in any other house in the world or to have occupied any other garden in Christendom, Christendom but the very house and garden which joined and laid parallel to Mrs. Wadman's. And that's a semicolon. And the sentence doesn't end until, yes. I think, the end of the chapter. It's a one-sentence chapter. Yeah, it was a one-sentence chapter. It's fairly short as chapters go, but it but is still. not at all short as sentences go. No. Um, Wonderful. Again, it's one of those, um, uh, what would you call it, a periodic sentences. Yeah. yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. It's one of those, once um, again. Which concludes with a very wonderful metaphor, because the sentence talks about uh, Toby's in his sentry box, which I believe is yeah. a description of, like, the uh, the box, or, like, the... Um, it's what he cl- he climbs up into this, this box to look out at the battlefield mm-hmm. he and Grimm have created to get a, a bird's-eye view of it. But, of course, the, the term sentry box refers to, like, an actual, you know, construct you'd make if you were the sentry at the edge of a camp or on the, the, the outskirts of a battle right. front. Um, and, of course, the, the period, as it were, to that periodic sentence uh, describes the widow Wadman endeavoring to blow my Uncle Toby up in the very centric sentry box itself, <laughs> which continues a metaphor both from this sentence and that pr- obtains throughout, um, I think, volume 7, 8, and 9, that's this metaphor for the Widow Wadman sort of trying to win Uncle Toby as her war, a, a campaign oh, yeah. that she's fighting, and, and all of the her, her maneuvers and so forth are just sort of put in terms of of battle and campaign you know, and it, so forth. It's just occurred to me that this book and the precedent that it sets that gets repeated elsewhere might be why I find it so unsatisfying to define as an extended metaphor a parable. <laughs> because this is an extended metaphor, but it's not a parable. Right. <laughs> um, nice periodic sentence there, by the way. You're welcome. I did uh, that deliberately. I'm I'm impressed at this time. Um, Why? Uh, no reason. I thought I've set a precedent for being that impressive, verbally speaking. <laughs> that was that was almost like white guy rap. <laughs> um. <laughs> I'm gone. I'm gone. <laughs> Did I just win the podcast? If there if were I a way, you? if there were a way to win the podcast, you would have done. <laughs> um, well, I'm okay. I'm, I'm pretty. I'm pretty proud of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Where in the world 
Can we go from You were here? talking about Widow Wadman and Well, I was just I was still, still oh, sort you, of just, you're just drawing that, that connection there. Yeah, and just okay. sort of responding to your uh uh idea of of the faith because yeah. when you first asked the question it seemed more like a Jacques the Fatalist question, and then I went ahead and just opened yeah, to this chapter about the fates and um I think this chapter is faded that you would. Right. I think this both this chapter and uh Toby's relationship with the widow in general are much more open ended, I guess I would say, oh, than sure. uh um Diderot is, because Diderot clearly has certain certain philosophical perspectives which um yeah. Even even though he's trying to do sort of a, a Platonic thing in Jacques where he's he's uh asking questions rather than sort of exegeting uh positions, um the positions do shine through. Whereas I think I do think Stern is just sort of making fun of a lot of stuff oh, in yeah. this talk. Like uh I don't I, I haven't done enough of like the scholarship to know exactly what language he's aping in chapter fourteen here, but sure. I, I you, you, you just get a know sense he that is. he is. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and I, other... speaking of the relation to Jacques the Fatalist too, I, I do get the feeling just in general that sense that, you know, Jacques the Fatalist is a derivative of Tristram Shandy. Not yeah. necessarily not, not to denigrate Jacques right. the Fatalist because it's great, but it is it's it's a it's almost like it's a distillation in yeah. the sense that Diderot <clears throat> Diderot read this book, adored this book, um, and that his work in Jacques the Fatalist was like that he might have viewed it um, like an alchemist taking yeah a, a much larger thing and and boiling off. Uh, I don't know that he'd have considered it the considered it the dross, but boiling off certain parts of it to distill it down to certain other parts of it. Yeah, sure. Um, well, and it occurs to me, okay, thinking about it in in the context here of you know, that question and then chronologically, too. You've got Don Quixote several hundred years or what, a hundred and... A uh, hundred, about the same time as close, Shakespeare. Yeah, so 150 about 150-ish years. years before this. Yeah. And then Jacques the Fatalist is shortly thereafter. So this is right in between those two. Um, and and it's it's pretty well acknowledged that Don Quixote is formative in terms of the novel itself and what the right. novel is. I wonder where this book falls, and I know that's not what we set out to discuss in this episode, but where this book falls in terms of how the novel is defined. Um, when you have people who are writing sort of histories of the novel or, uh, you know, charting the development of the novel as a form. Uh, the Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy is always considered a major point in its development. Right. Um, now, the the beyond that, the answer to your question is highly debatable, and it will depend on oh, sure. sort of critics' uh, own perspectives and, and uh, broader theses about what the novel is. Um, I will say a book we've... Uh, Referred to a few times throughout the course of this podcast, the lives of the novel. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Kandera? No. No, no, no. Pavel, I believe. Um, Pavel, yeah. Uh, Pavel, like, so that's that's a, a thousand page book. Um, and most in most of his chapters, he's so a few of them chart 
a specific era in the development of the novel, but most of them chart more of sort of a topical idea. So okay. like, he'll have, you know, you'll have a chapter on like novelists whose interest is in, say, the inner monologue, and then you'll have another mm-hmm. chapter about novelists whose interest is more in like depicting a culture. So ah. one might have much fewer characters, one might have you know, a far greater number of characters. But at the beginning of each of his chapters, he um, lists the authors that he's going to cover over the course of a given chapter. Gotcha. Uh, and there's probably, if I remember right, there's 40 or 50 chapters in this book. Um, hundreds of authors covered. Like, the, the yeah. amount that this man has read is truly impressive. Staggering. Yeah. Uh, I would, I believe there were two maybe three chapters that were just devoted to a single author Mm. um and tristram shandy was one of them nice or lawrence stern rather i yep i follow but uh yeah he's he spent out in a book um that had the entire breadth of the history of the novel to cover he spent one entire chapter just on tristram shandy nice um kundera also you know his his uh to read his criticism, you know, the, his two to three, two to three of his favorite works would be Jacques Fatalist, Don Quixote, Tristram Shandy. Awesome. Um, it's it it is sort of monumental in the development of the novel as a form. Sure. Um, and like I, again, every, each one of these authors will have a slightly different version of why that is. Um, I think some of it has to do with uh. Stern sort of breaking new ground as far yeah. as what a novel could do or portray <clears throat> or accomplish. Yeah. Um, as far as I think some of it, and this is just me guessing now, but I I think some of it would have to do with time dilation, which is something that we could mm-hmm. easily have talked about for Certainly. half an hour. Um, but the idea that there are certain of these scenes, uh, one with um, Parson Yorick comes to mind. Mm, uh, yeah. A couple of the scenes with uh, Toby, with Tristram's fa- father, and with um, uh, Trim come to mind where uh, the stuff, like a scene is described in just minute detail, and it, it take you know, the, the amount of pages that it, it covers is vastly greater even reading it aloud would be vastly longer than the scene itself took to play out mm-hmm. um oh one of one of the greatest like the moments that sticks out to me from this novel as a whole is um when tristram is is being born and uh trim encounters susanna uh susanna being yeah. the, uh tristram's mother's you know maid servant yep. and uh, Trim, of course, we know, and Susanna, bet- between all of, like, you know, the drama, and, and there's, you know, Doctor having to use forceps, uh, the mm-hmm. child being in danger, and, um, and you know, Tristram's mother, understandably, being uh, very emotional. Susanna herself is, like, right on the edge emotionally, and there's this wonderful description of Trim uh, taking off his hat and just throwing it on the ground and the instant that he that his hat hits the ground susanna bursts into tears uh-huh. uh and 
but the the passage is probably 20 pages long but it's all a passage about that single moment and i suspect stern among many other things as far as you know uh breaking free of structural constraints and and things like that i think stern is probably one of the first authors to um just be able to anatomize everything going on in a single moment in such great detail and with such great attention yeah um and that's something that gets you know diluted and, and twisted and changed um throughout the course of the novel as a form but uh you know even even books like tom jones that we've talked about in in earlier episodes in this run of shows um they're they're still at this time almost stagey and almost more general where you'd have more of a of a what do you call um like a montage sequence ah, rather sure. than a, an anatomized scene and if yeah. you did have an anatomized scene it's much more in terms of like blocking and action it reads more like a play whereas uh stern is one of the first authors to take the potential of the novel to simply spend reams of text just on one moment mm-hmm. and really sort of explore explore the fact that a novel could do that in a way that no other form could mm-hmm. and i think part, that may hold a key to why the novel is still as relevant mm-hmm. as it is today even in turn even with um terms of say uh film or tv shows or whatever that that are much more popular much more highly produced but the novel can still do certain things mm-hmm. that even those high-tech media cannot accomplish um so if that was your question and quite frankly i've forgotten if it was but if your question yeah. was like why is this novel so important which I feel like is what I talk is what I'm talking about anytime I'm talking about this novel. Like that's right. That's my best stab in the the last few minutes of this uh, this run of shows at sort of determining or sort of explaining why why that is. Yeah. Uh, the you, the fact that you can imbue one single moment with such meaning and such importance um, by using this form and perhaps in no other way. Sure. Um, is something that Stern does first. And it, it carries down, you know, into Thomas Pynchon, into James Joyce. Yeah. Um, into a lot of the heirs of of uh, Tristram Shandy throughout the, not just the 20th century, but even even earlier and even, you know, up to up to this day. For better or worse, uh, um, in David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest would not exist without Tristram Shandy. Uh, and also a lot of much better books than that would not exist without Tristram Shandy. Sure. Sure. Fair. Um, there's obviously a lot more I'd love to say about this book, but... Oh, of course. Uh, the constraints of chronological time indicate that we are, uh, unable to do so. I, I want to make just the briefest mention that, you know, we were going to talk, uh, about Uncle Toby this, this, uh, episode. We did a little bit. We did, we did some. We did some. Um, one of the, the connections to him, and I don't want to belabor this too much, is how much he whistles yeah. the bolero, yes. um, which is, you know, connected to the whole war theme and all that stuff. It's a patriotic thing. 
Um, there's one particular point, and like it being something musical, I did outsource a question to our friend Josiah oh, yeah. uh, about this. Um, there was a chapter, and I couldn't find exactly where it was, but he, uh, Tristram Shandy, is, it's not directly connected to Lilla Bolero, but um, he talks about making the braying of a donkey sound. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says it, in in my edition, it said it in G, in G full re ut. G full re ut. Which, in discussing with Josiah, probably is actually a typological error in the book, that it oh. should be G sol re ut, but when you think about how Fs were made oh, at yeah, the yeah. time. Um, which, sol is, you know, more along the lines of Solfege, uh, yeah. that sort of notation, which again just is making the braying of donkey in G right. as hee-haw. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Nice. Anyway, so the musical connection is there, uh, but right. like with uh, Uncle Toby as well, sing- whistling that Lula Bolero anytime he gets stressed or interrupted. Um, not only that, but the I, if we go back to the question of censorship, um, quite often. Uncle Toby has to whistle this when I think yes. he does it in in the scenes where they're waiting for Tristram's birth and mm-hmm. uh, anytime like female anatomy is mentioned like yep and the idea of taking this patriotic tune um, which violation of patriotism would probably be the unwritten rule that would be the most likely course that would get you to lose your head so oh yeah uh, you know overwriting something sensitive with a, a patriotic thing, it seems very uh, on yes. point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Very good. Yeah. Well, we are already vastly over time, considering what we have to do with the rest of this episode. Oh, we have to do so much. But what else is new? Yeah. Uh, Do we do ratings first or punishments first? I think we do punishments first. I think we do. Uh, Michael, as the guest, I will... Uh, drop my pants and give you the first crack at punishing me. Well, that's exciting. All right, so here's wow. what I'm going to do for your punishment. I want you to turn in your volume to part six, or volume six, yes. chapter 40. Okay. Uh, and I want you to pick one of those lines. One, oh, two, three, great. or four. Well, four. Four. All right, I want you to hold number four there. And I, I, I want you, I'm going to give you some interpretive license here, but I want you to fit the beginning of the book over those those lines, okay, and turn them musical. So you want me to pretend that this is musical notation, reading the beginning of the book. All right. Well, <laughs> this is going to be a disaster. Exactly. I wish either my father or my mother, or indeed both of them as they were both in duty equally bound to it, had minded what they were about when they begat me. Had they duly considered how much depended upon what they were then doing. (laughs) The end. The end. All right. There you go. All right. I have... I forgot. I have to uh, go get something real quick. So, okay. Entertain the, entertain the gentle listener in what I will surely cut out of the. Of final course, edit of, of the... course you will. Of course you'll cut this out. 
you and I both know, gentle listener, he's not going to cut this out at all. He's going to leave this for all of you. All right, he's shut the door upstairs, so now we can have our private conversation. You know, there's always so much we don't talk about in these books. Uh, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about sex, but that's not what we really want to talk about, is it, gentle listener? I'm winking, wink, 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 wink. That's not really what we want to talk about. What is it we want to talk about? What do you want to talk about? I want to hear that. I mean, there's so much we could have talked about Uncle Toby. Who's the Uncle Toby in your life? That's what I want to know. I want you to send me a message. Uh, send it to the, the Tapestry Radio Twitter. You know where they find that. Who is it? Let me know. Bye. All right, I'm looking forward to whatever that is. <laughs> good. Um, I could not find... I had an extremely good punishment that I had... Been waiting till I got to see you Aww. to uh, do, uh, but it involves a physical object that seems to have become lost somewhere in our move. Uh, you'll find it. Um, I will find it. I may bring it with me the next time we uh, do one of these, assuming we're well, able exciting. to do them right together again. Uh, but I have a backup plan. Woo! I'm going to hand you a text, Michael. Oh? Wait, you're going to hand me a text? Yes. You're going to text me hand? No. Oh. I'm going to hand you a text, and I'm going to give you one minute Whew! to memorize this text. Oh, boy. Okay. Yikes. And uh, I'm going to set the timer on my phone, hand you the text. And then we're going to go. I'll set it for a little bit over just so we have time to do the transition. So you'll have one minute with this text, and then you will uh, recite it to me. Goody, goody gumdrops. All right. This is not fair. Oh, crap. Oh, no. Okay. Oh, shoot. So the poem is An Irish Airman Foresees His Death by William yep. Butler Yeats. Here we go. Let's see what we can do. I, it, it begins something like, I meet my fate among the clouds, and no one's going to cry when I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my country's fate is something dross. My countrymen uh, are Irish, I think. Um, my something is Kilpatrick in there somewhere. In there, Kilpatrick something also. That's not exactly what it is. It's, I, oh man. I felt so much better about this when I was reading it. <laughs> um, and I don't hate the people I'm fighting. I don't love the people I'm protecting. I'm paraphrasing. Um, I just paraphrasing the poem. Just paraphrasing the poem as far as I've memorized it. See, I memorize ideas and then I get the words done. Sure. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm learning this about myself as I'm going. Uh, <laughs> Uh, here we go in the clouds fighting and shooting 
and it was some rich guys that had this idea to do this. It wasn't actually important. Uh, that's what it said in the poem, effectively. Right. There we go. What's it say? Shoot. I know that I shall meet my fate somewhere in the clouds above. Those that I fight, I do not hate. Those that I serve, I do not love. Nor law nor duty bade me fight, nor public men, nor cheering crowd. A lonely impulse of delight drove to this tumult of the cloud. Uh, that's all I can do off the top all right, of my head. Alright, you, you skipped about four lines in there, got a couple words mixed up, but otherwise very, very good. I memorized that poem for no reason when I was like 16. That's amazing. And with a little jogging, I can still do most of it. I love it. That's fantastic. Um, and I am ashamed of myself. <laughs> I I was feeling a little bad about how stressed out this made you. Like, it, I didn't expect it to be that much, but then again, this is punishment time. This so is like... punishment time, and it's like, you know, I mean, effectively two episodes in, but four episodes in, and... Woo! Okay. Yeah. Uh, I I mean, for what... You, and also, you had one minute with the text. Like, you did I mean, better than I expected you to. I, 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 was, I was going for bulk rather than accuracy. Sure. And I, I mean, should have gone for accuracy. You, I would have done had, better. You had one minute. I mean, if you'd, if you'd gone for accuracy, you maybe would have memorized the first couplet. Mm -hmm. Like, you, you were in At an least. impossible position, and uh, I'm not going to compliment you because this was a punishment. You right. You don't get compliments. I get punishments only. Exactly. Uh, all right. So, that said, here we are at ratings. Woo! Uh, Michael, how would you rate this book? Um, buy, uh, borrow, or forget about it. You mean on a scale of buy it to buy it to buy it? I would rate it buy it, buy it, buy it. Um, notwithstanding its importance in the history of literature, it's hilarious. And take go back and listen to the first episode again and listen to Professor Bartlett's points about all of this and you will understand. And it's, it, it's hilarious. Like, Funny that you even, like, nowadays have to work for a little bit is really, really good. Really good. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I don't know what I can really add to that, at least that I haven't said over the course of these last four hours. Um, but yeah, uh, buy it, read it so much that your original copy from Borders does lose its cover and you have to buy it again. Yeah! Like, that's that's all I can say. I mean, this this uh, rating for me was never going to be a mystery if you've listened to <laughs> the rest of this, this like, entire series, let alone right. this, this four-episode run. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael, how would you rate Green Spot Single Pot Still Irish Whiskey? Oh, my gosh. It's so good. Um... It, it, I am less familiar with Irish whiskeys. I'll say that sure. just as a preface. Preface, um, that preface but with that preface, I'm going to give it a 4.5 because I would drink this all day, any day. Um, we talked in one of our our bonus non-recorded episodes about how it's got some appley notes that in there, and like it, it's like with that and everything going on, it's so perfect for like a drizzly up autumnal day yeah um i which is ideal in any day for me um agree it's so good i would drink this all the time and so yeah i i, I don't want to say it's perfect because i want to believe that there's always possibility for growth 
Um, but <laughs> that said, I, you know, I'm great. I've given things five stars before, but still, I'm going to say 4.5. Yeah. I, I agree. 4.5 for me as well. Um, as I, as I mentioned, uh, when I was in Ireland, this became my go-to, uh, whiskey, just like, um, you know, besides, if you're in Ireland and you're in a bar and you like beer at all, you should be drinking Guinness because it is... Oh, sure. Um, it is, it is better nowhere else in the world. Like it's, I used to think that people who came back to America from Ireland and said the Guinness was better were just being pretentious. <laughs> um, they are not. It is, it is genuinely better. But if you want something other than Guinness, like Green Spot is your old reliable. Um, and awesome. it's, it's very beautiful. Uh, and, um, yeah, it's it's just it's just super good. Uh, Michael mentioned the green apple notes, uh, which are the first thing I detected. Uh, especially that was like what was apparent to me when I was drinking it in Ireland. Um, going through this bottle, I was I st- that's still there, obviously, but uh, I was picking up a lot of like cloves and maybe the nutmeg and maybe some mm. other spices. Mm-hmm. It was like really like a like a nice well-spiced apple pie yes um it's yeah it's just uh it's just very good right but not 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 nearly as like sickly sweet yeah 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 no it's 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 a a savory well-spiced apple pie yeah it really is like if you've ever had a good homemade apple pie by like i don't know sometimes sometimes i feel like you know grandmas in the upper midwest i don't know if they're hearkening back to an earlier time but they don't make their apple pie quite as sweet oh sure um, and if you've ever had like a really well spiced like apple pie from someone who just is confident confident enough to not just like dump sugar into it <laughs> like that but it's, it's probably even more savory than that like yeah. Anyone who knows about me knows I don't like sweet liquors and mm. like this is this is really not that at all, but has has all of the rest of the good stuff, I would right. say, of apple. It's a little sweet. Irish whiskey is oh, a, little, sure. a little sweet generally. Uh yeah. So uh that's the the whiskey rating. Uh Michael, how would you rate the pairing of uh Green Spot with Tristram Shandy? See, this is tough because I can't think of a lot of things that wouldn't pair well with Green Spot, and I can't think of a lot of things that wouldn't pair well with Tristram Shandy. Right. And so with two universally well-pairing things, how can you say anything but perfect match? <laughs> um, and so that's, that's I think, where I'm going to settle on this. Uh, it, it's it, it's just perfect. I mean, sure. it's great. <laughs> I, I tend to agree. The only question I have, or the only, like, minority report, I guess, that, that I have about that is, uh, Tristram Shandy almost feels like the perfect book for a scotch. Sure. Um, like, I think in, I think if you were to, you know, walk into Tristram's house or into Uncle Toby's house and... Um, if they did offer you a strong drink, it would be most likely to be scotch or something like scotch, just sure. because in, in that time, in that geography, that's what would be available and popular. Yeah. Um, however, I, the, the, the however is where I just basically restate what you just said, right? Like, yeah. The, they're both so agreeable, and 
the taste of green spot like feels very much like uh tristram or uncle toby and some of his more sentimental moods would just like this is the exact whiskey representation of something like that so ultimately i am gonna say perfect match even i'm gonna say perfect match with the only caveat being possibly not the only perfect match yeah yeah which again is sort of sort of what you said yeah um yeah all right so that said uh we come to the end of our tristram shandy journey (sighs) what a journey it's been it has um that said, surely not the last time we will talk about Tristram Shandy on this, on this podcast. Um, I feel like, honestly, I almost feel like, you know how when you uh, designed the, the Scotchcast section of the Tapestry website, uh, your first headline was, don't listen in order. Yeah. I tend to feel like, um, it, almost like this, these four episodes, because they're about this book, would be the ideal first episode. Oh yeah, you could definitely to. start here. Um, because I do feel like again, and we talked about this with uh, Jacques the Fatalist, but I think there have been others even where it's like we've referred back to these episodes. We just hadn't recorded them. Yet. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. So yeah, that said, like maybe if if this is among your first episodes to listen to, like you're actually better prepared to listen to some of our older ones than people who listened real time. And for those of us who have been with us, for those of you who have been with us, hopefully uh, maybe some remarks or tangents we went on in some of those back episodes maybe make somewhat more sense now. now. Um, Whether you did, in fact, read Tristram Shandy with us or were wrong. Right. Um, (laughs) But, yeah. So, uh, that said, thank you for, uh, being here with us. Oh, uh, I was going to go into, yeah, some of the the credits, but you might want to know, uh, what we are reading next. Yeah. Well, I ordered, uh, our next book, but, um, unless it's in my mailbox right now, it has (laughs) not come. Okay. So, uh, I'm going to, at least for now, give you my copy. Oh, okay. Ethan is walking into the corner of the room, and he is peering at the shelves of books, and looking over them intently as he searches. I saw it the other day. He's adding internal commentary that he hopes the microphone will pick up. I don't think so. As he looks over these bookshelves and complains, he is wearing a uh, blue plaid sweater. As he looks around... Paging through the books, scratching his face. This is certainly a sport (laughs) in some world. He's lumbering back disappointedly. That's a that's (laughs) an adjective you used. It's a verb. Thank you. You're right, it was a verb. (laughs) With an adverb attached. With an adverb what? Attached. Pursuing the initial bookshelves again to see if perhaps he missed them as he was looking over them the first time. If perhaps ah! the book has materialized, and it has! He has successfully found what he was looking for, and here he returns with it. 
So this is the volume I have ordered to share with you. Okay. Uh, oh, it my. It is... And we are, don't panic, not reading the entire thing. Oh, okay. Um, much as I was tempted to, because it is not... It's, it's, I mean, it's an average book size. Yeah, roughly. It's The pages are a little thin. I think it might run to four to five hundred pages sure. altogether. Um, the volume I have handed Michael to uh, bookend our obnoxious thing of making visual references <laughs> in, this, in this podcast is the complete works of J.M. Singh. Singh spelled with a Y instead of an I and also an extra E at the end. Mm -hmm. um, J.M. stands for John Millington. Uh, who, uh, and this, this choice was foreshadowed at the end of our last set of four episodes in which Michael, due to losing, yeah, uh, did have to read a monologue from the work that I have picked as our Ooh. next book. Oh, I'm excited. Um, which is, uh, the play, the playboy of the Western world, um, by John Millington Singh. Uh, which is, as I just, uh, I was going to call it foreshadow, but basically just shadowed, was, um, is a play and not a, not a book, but I figured, right. um, we haven't was... done a play on the podcast yet, have we? Uh, we did The Tempest. Oh, okay, okay, besides Shakespeare. Yeah, if, if you don't count Shakespeare, we have not done a play on the podcast, and even Shakespeare has been, like, specials and not, has not been a main, main episode feature. Right. Um, I am a little apprehensive because of the length. I'm hoping that we can get two episodes out of it. But on the I'm other sure hand, we can. it's us. Like, yeah. I'm sure that we can. Uh, so, I, I also, the fact that it's short, um, I, I'm not going to, like, require you to read it twice, but <laughs> I'm going to say that it might be appropriate to read it twice. Sure. Uh, and if you need to, you, Michael, you like can catch much more on a first reading generally than like I can. Like, I feel like I often need two or three reads to get some of the stuff you get on an initial read. So you might not need to, but uh, point being, if you need to, hopefully you'll sort of have the time. Sure. And if not, then uh, so much the better. Awesome. Uh, so yes, The Playboy of the Western World by John Millington Singh. Awesome. The reason I brought it, I mean, obviously, I had to bring a work of Irish literature at this of course point. You like, did. it's the only next logical step. But also, it's one of my favorite plays, um, and I've read it three or four times, and I need someone else to read it. <laughs> um, partly because I think Singh is read in schools in Ireland and possibly nowhere else. Wow. Um,. But I think a lot of, I, I think Playboy especially is an extremely interesting play that's worth reading. Um, I think it gets pigeonholed because it's this it's this work in Irish dialect and it was part of like the Irish sort of nationalistic revival. Mm. Um, but I think it can, well, that's not unimportant. I think it can stretch beyond that. And I just need like another pair of eyes that's not me and my Irish obsession or like, <laughs> Someone who had to read this play for school and hates it because of that, because, you know, they yeah. grew up in Ireland, um, to look at this. So I don't honestly know if it's, I mean, I think it's a good play, but I don't know if it's a good play. Okay, okay. Uh, but I think it's definitely interesting and, and worth reading. Definitely. 
Um, so Michael, do you know what we're reading after that? After that is in this bag. Uh, Michael has handed me a back, a back blag. A back blag. A black bag. It is crinkly, and there's a book inside it. That's your copy. All right. It is Ball Lightning by, and I looked up the pronunciation, it's Xixin Liu. Okay. Xixin Liu. Spelled um, C-I-X-I-N-L-I-U. Yes. Chinese author. Uh, he's most famous for writing The Three-Body Problem. Yes. Um, this is, a, which The Three-Body Problem is part of, I think, a trilogy. Um, yeah, it's a, this, I think the first book in a trilogy. Right. This book, Ball Lightning, is standalone. It is sci-fi. Um, I have not read it. I have not read anything by Tishin Liu. I've been interested to read, th- read things by him, and therefore I am bringing this to us to see if I actually like his work. I was feeling something sci-fi, and so here we are. There's my answer. Wonderful. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I... Uh... I also have been interested in this author. I've read a lot of people talking about the three body problem. I never, I haven't read it or anything by him, so I'm actually really excited about this pick. Awesome. All right. Uh, that said, we are now even more over time than we were before. <laughs> uh, so we will wrap up here. Um, this has been Michael and Ethan in a room with Scotch. I am Ethan. I'm Michael. Uh, and yeah, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show, please check out our other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network. Uh, shows like Intermission, our Backstage Audio Drama Podcast, Pokemon Rollout, our Pokemon United Tabletop RPG Actual Play Podcast, uh, the uh, podcast Us Play Fiasco, uh Real play podcast about the game Fiasco. <laughs> um, our, uh, wait, am I missing any? I think that's it for uh, as of this recording. Yep, you're good. Um, check us out uh, on Facebook. Join the Tapestry Radio Tap House. Uh, apply to join. We'll let you in unless you are Uncle Toby's groin injury. <laughs> nice. Uh, I am at Bjartlett on Twitter. That's at B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. Michael, where are you on Twitter? I'm at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. Excellent. Um, Feel free to uh, ask us to do your homework. We occasionally do specials where we do people's homework from either the past, the present, or the future. If it is future homework, we encourage you to type up a verbatim transcript of how we respond to your (laughs) homework. And then submit it as your assignment. Your teacher will give you an F. You will go to plagiarism jail, and uh, we, we will go laugh. viral. We will get we will get all the clicks, and uh, this podcast will become famous. Yes. Um. That said, uh, I think that's I think that's all I have to say. Yeah. Uh. So until next time, gentle listener, just remember it's our party, and we'll cry because. We finished Tristram Shandy and life has no meaning after this. Indeed.
obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From our fancy to yours.